I invite you to take a Bible, either one that you may have brought or one from underneath the pew in front of you, or if you prefer just to listen. If you're going to turn, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I've been praying for some time now about what in this cluster of Holy Week messages I might say or what I think the Lord would like to say through me. It's Palm Sunday and then it's Maundy Thursday and then it's Easter and Palm Sunday, the coming of the Lord. It was so good to walk into the choir room early this morning while the children were getting ready and one of the adult leaders just had this big smile on her face and she looked at me and she said, Jesus is King. I love Palm Sunday. <laughs> I always said, oh, I wish everybody loved Palm Sunday like that. But he's King and he has come. So that's what today is about. And then Thursday night we'll be back here and the communion table will be spread and we do the service a little later because it's a, it's a later and darker moment in the life of Jesus. And that's the death. And then Easter Sunday we'll be here and we'll do our He is risen and that's about resurrection and reigning. And so where do you, where do you go? If you were going to preach three times, where would you go? And I felt constrained to go to this text for all three messages. So I'm going to read with you now verses one to four of Hebrews one. And I think you'll see enough in these four verses to amply supply three messages from the Lord this week and into next Sunday. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, that's what I'm going to talk about Thursday night, that glorious phrase that is the rock foundation of our lives. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And there's Easter Sunday's message right there. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Father, as I attempt now to unfold this magnificent passage in part, would you come and be the teacher would you come and do what you did for those Thessalonians when Paul called them God-taught to love one another? They were God-taught, not just Paul-taught. And I pray that this congregation would not just be John Piper-taught, but God-taught. And if you would be pleased now, as I pray you would be, to use me as a part of that great work that you mean to do in shaping the minds and hearts of this people according to your own mind and heart and truth and love, do it. It would be a great honor to be a part of that this morning. Would you open our ears and open our 
eyes that we might see what we see, lest it be said of us, seeing they did not see and hearing they did not hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to ask you a question or have you ask a question as we begin, namely, do you want to hear God? Do you want to hear the voice of God? Is there a longing in your heart to hear God? Let me ask it another way. Are you like me sometimes in becoming very discouraged or frustrated or even angry almost to the point where you say, God, if you would just speak, if you would just stand forth and say a word, if I could just hear your voice. You ever get to that point? I do. And when I do, the Lord has repeatedly for me, gently and mercifully, given me appropriate rebukes. One of which is found in verses 1 and 2 of this text. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us By the way, the us there is not the apostles. You know that from chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. They are a third generation who heard from the apostles. I'm going to say something about that in the star this week. But the us is people like you and me who didn't see the Lord firsthand and didn't hear the Lord firsthand. Nevertheless, it says, in these last days, he has spoken to us us third, fourth, fifth, twentieth, thirtieth, fiftieth generation. He has spoken to us in his Son. Now notice in these two verses that there are two phases of the speaking of God. The first phase is before the coming of the Son. And the second phase is in and through the coming of the Son of God. And I want to talk about each of those Phases, because I hear for myself a tender rebuke about my complaining about God's speaking in these words. So let's take phase number one. The time that God says he spoke before the coming of the Son of God. Let's read that. In the prophets, in many portions... And in many ways, God spoke. Now, let me say three things about this phase of speaking before Christ, the Son of God, came. Number one, very simple, very obvious, and stunning. Namely, number one, God spoke. I was riding to Pizza Hut yesterday with Abraham. It was his turn to go to Pizza Hut. And as we crossed 11th Avenue down there, I said, you know, Abraham, it seems to me that the main challenge of the Christian life is to see what you see. Just to see what you see. Because Jesus criticized us seeing they do not see. 
say, oh, so you can see and not see. So the main challenge of the Christian life is to see what you see. I said, my job as a pastor is to see what I see when I read the Bible. And then find ways to say it so that others see what they see. Because most of us don't see what we see. We read the Bible. And, and I said to him as we crossed 11th Avenue, I said, isn't it amazing in the first line of the book of Hebrews that God spoke? I mean, do you stop? Do we stop and see what we see? God is not a silent God. He's not a withdrawn God. He's not an uncommunicative God. He's not like many of the people we know who when they come into a room slink off to a corner because they don't want to talk. He's a, he comes into a room and he goes up and he says, Hi, I'm God. My name is God. I have a word for you. I like to talk. I speak. God is a speaking, communicating God. We need to see what we see. I think the most stunning fact in the universe is that there is a God who speaks. I just think that's amazing. But you know, I've read the book of Hebrews, goodness knows how many hundreds of times, and many times I don't see that. I don't pause and say, wow, God speaks. I don't see what I see. And so the challenge of the Christian life, I said to him, and, and he said, hmm, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Number two, that's the first observation about phase one. God spoke. He's not a silent God. Number two, he spoke in the prophets or by the prophets. You see that there? He spoke by the prophets. Now, that seems obvious enough, but you know, that's just full of significant implications for living. What it means is, it is not God's typical way to speak by writing his word in the sky for everybody to read. Nor is it God's typical way to communicate with people by shouting loud sounds from the top of mountains like Mount Sinai. It's not his typical way. Nor is it his typical way to whisper in individual hearts his word. God's typical way is to select prophets, inspire them, and tell them to go talk to people on his behalf. Now that's amazing. I mean, to know that is an important fact to know. Because one of the reasons that I get so upset with God at times is because I don't like it. I have another idea of how you should have done it. You should talk to me. Don't use prophets and apostles. Talk to me. Well, that's very rebellious on my part. I mean, when you get angry at God that he doesn't write it in the sky, shout it from the mountains, whisper it in the closet, who are you? Who's John Piper to tell God how to communicate God? So this is an important little phrase. He spoke by prophets. By prophets. So there were tens of thousands of Israelites that didn't get it firsthand, ever. They got it secondhand, exactly the way God wanted them to get it. Gloriously, truthfully, inerrantly, 
And I believe the Holy Spirit was working then too powerfully through the Holy Spirit. We'll say more about how it goes today. But I see that principle of God using intermediaries to get to his people as pretty typical throughout all of his communicating. So that's observation number two about the first phase. Here's number three. God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, and then you get these two phrases, in many portions and in many ways. Now that word portions can be translated places or districts or times and in many ways. Now here's where, you just for me, I, I, I dwelt on that. I tried to see what I was seeing. I saw the word many, many portions, times, places, ways, many. I said, now what, what are you trying to tell me? What am I seeing? What am I hearing with that word many, many? And the answer is, I'm not slow to communicate and I don't narrow it down with just one time and one way. I do it in many times, many portions, many places and many ways. Why? Because if there were just one place where he spoke, say Leviticus, we'd be in trouble because most of us don't get Leviticus. Or if it were just one place like the strange visions of Ezekiel, wheels within wheels and eyes and you see, that's, that's my word. If you don't get it, tough. That's not the way he was. He spoke all over the place in many times, in many ways. Why? So we get it. So if you don't get Zechariah, you get Jonah. And if you don't get Ezekiel, you get the Psalms. And if you don't get Leviticus, you get Job and his sufferings. God wants you to get it. He wants you to hear it and love it and see him through it. And he knows we're all different. He knows the circumstances and the people of Israel were all different. And so there are many ways and many places and many portions. He is a lavishly communicating God. That's what I hear in the words, many, many portions, ways. So the first phase of God speaking to the world up to the coming of Jesus, the Son, rebukes me. God, if you only speak, I need to hear your voice. I think God comes quietly. I don't think he gets too mad at us at those times because he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And he says, many portions, many ways Hundreds and hundreds of words have I spoken and many of them fit your situation right now. They are tailor-made for your pain and tailor-made for your frustration and your confusion. John, John, be content with my ways. So I think phase number one is a, a word to us about not getting too... Angry that God doesn't do it our way. I sometimes feel like a person in the land of 10,000 lakes crying out, there are no lakes in Minnesota because I can't see one from 1801 11th Avenue. 
There's no word from God for my situation. God says, wrong, wrong, wrong. There are 10,000 lakes in Minnesota and 10,000 words from God. Have you spent any time with me? Now here's phase two. Let's go to phase two. God's not done speaking after phase one. Verse two. But in these last days, I'll come back to that phrase in a few minutes. In these last days, God has spoken to us in or by his son. Now, the point here is that if God was very communicative, very ready, very eager, very open and lavish in his communicating in phase one, how much more in phase two? And I want to spend some time on the how much more. What is better? What is greater about phase two than phase one? Because it's clear to me that this writer means for us to understand that in moving from phase one communication to phase two communication, he means for us to be stunned at the betterness of it all. For us, he speaks to us now. So when I complain now, Oh, God, if you just speak, the rebuke kind of bumps up a level because there's something better here than there. So let's look at three ways that the phase two communication is superior, better than phase one. Let's read it just to make sure we have it before us. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. We'll, we'll move on beyond that, but let's just stop there. So number one, number one superiority of phase two over phase one is that the son is now God's word here, not prophets. Notice, he does not make this contrast. He does not say, in the former times, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, and in these last days, he spoke to us by apostles. He doesn't say that. That's true. The apostles have a role to play virtually identical to the prophets, the old great writing prophets and the inspired writing apostles, like Paul, Matthew, and so on. But that's not what this text says. This text is, is drawing us a little closer to the center of God's word by saying they spoke or God spoke by prophets. Now he speaks by a son. And the superiority is the superiority between prophets and a son. And that's a big Superiority. The contrast intended here is first between prophets then, son now. Which means, by the way, or not so by the way, that Islam makes a very great mistake in treating Jesus as a mere prophet. And, and we need to keep this in mind because Christianity is very often, and you 
some of you will no doubt get yourself into major trouble and some of us may well not live out our whole lives by saying that Muhammad is not all he is claimed to be and we are put on list like Salman Rushdie and others for saying things like that but we need to realize and it might help in a conversation to say to a Muslim do you realize what you say about my God Jesus Christ you say my God is no God you blaspheme my God just make sure we keep the tables even the claims of religion between these two faiths are mutually exclusive they say Jesus was a prophet this text says he was the son of God more than a prophet so we need to keep it even if they're going to accuse us of blasphemy in our saying Muhammad is not all that he claims to be we need to make sure though I think we should never use any kind of ugliness or bitterness or violence in saying it the church has made mistakes in those ways in the past we have much to be sorry for in that regard nevertheless we need to say very clearly you belittle my God your very faith is a belittling of my God okay let's just make that clear in our conversations around town that our claims cut and we cannot help it their claim cuts my claim cuts and we must choose the truth they cannot both be true Jesus in this text is the son now next week I don't want to go into it too much now though it's worthy of going into for a whole sermon next Sunday I want you to look at verse 3 where do I get this idea that Jesus is so exalted that he's more than just a prophet? That he's not a son like you and I are sons, but he is more. I get it from verse 3. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And if you read the rest of this book, you will see clearly that Jesus Christ, the Son, is a divine Son. The Son of John Piper is a human because John Piper is a human. And the Son of God is divine because God is divine. Jesus Christ is not a mere man. He is a God-man. The Son of God. This is the word that God spoke. This is the new phase of speaking that when God ready was ready in the new phase to deliver a new word to the world, he didn't just speak through apostles, he spoke a son by a virgin birth. He spoke a son and the son was holy to the Lord and was God. It is a remarkable claim. Who he was, what he said, what he did, this is the word. And so when I complain, oh God, where's your word? Speak. Let me hear you. Let me see you. And there comes a rebuke to me 
And I have to ask, is my word, Jesus Christ, so short, so simple and so thin that you're done with it? You've got it all. It has shaped your mind. It has taken control of you. It has molded you so that now you think his thoughts after him. You're done with that word and you want a third word now. Really, John Piper, really. And so the rebuke intensifies. Is the aching of my soul and the confusion of my mind really owing to the fact that I have exhausted this word? I think not. Here's the second thing about the second phase that makes it superior. It says here in verse 2 that the Son who is God's speaking was appointed heir of all things. Let's read that. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now, why does he add that? Why does he add that crucial phrase when he says, the word that I speak in these last days is my son? And then he adds, whom God appointed heir, E-H-E-I-R, heir of all things. All land, all water, all air, all buildings, all military might, all political might, all human resources, all natural resources, all bacteria and viruses, everything. All spiritual beings, demons, angels, Satan, everything but God the Father is Christ's. He inherits it. He owns it. He controls it. Why does that matter here in this verse? For this reason, I believe, If Christ has come as God's decisive word to me, then if he is the heir of all things at the end of the age, controlling and owning all that is, he can make good on his word. So if he says to me, John Piper, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I can't come back to him and say, how can you give the earth? How can you make a promise like that? Because the answer is given right here. I own the earth. I inherit the earth. It's mine to give to whom I will. So if I make a promise that the meek shall inherit the earth, I will make good on the promise. Or if he says to me, Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will separate you from the love of God in Christ. And I say, oh, but how do you know? He says, I own it. It's mine. I'm the heir of all things. At the end of the age, I have total disposal over all things. I can dispose of them for your good in any way I please. And I promise you, nothing in all things will separate you from the love of Christ. Or suppose he promises me, as he does, 
There will be no more pain. There will be no more crying for the former things have passed away and there will be no more death. I can't come back to him and say, ah, aren't there some things that cause crying? How do you know there might be some things that will cause crying at the end of the age? How do you know that death might take hold of me and pull me down into hell? And his answer comes back, it's all right here. I am the heir of all things. I own death. I own life. I own everything that causes pain and crying. And I will use them for your glory, not for your destruction. So it makes a whale of a difference to me to hear the word of God described as the heir of all things. Because I love what I hear in the word of God about my future. And if I don't have some guarantee that the word can make good on the word... Then I said, well, you speak it, but big deal. Who knows? It may not come true. But when I hear that someday he's got it all totally in his power and under his control, then I take heart that what this writer wants me to hear is not simply that God has spoken by his son, but that his son is the heir of all things and therefore can make good on everything he speaks. Now, here's a question. Another question that's sort of related here. Have you ever asked the question in this text? Why does he put the heirship of Christ before the creatorship of Christ? You see that? It says that uh, he is appointed heir of all things through whom God made the world. I've always read that and I've kind of stumbled over it thinking, well, that's out of order. Why did you say it that way? Why did you say heir first and creator second? I would have said it. Creator first and then made purification for sins and then he's the heir of all things. I would have put it in a nice order. That's the way I think. So why'd you do it this way? And here's my suggestion why he did it this way. The, the end of a story, my story, the end of my story and your story is more important to you and to me than the beginning. What if you agree with that? It feels inevitable to me. How I end up forever and ever and ever and ever is so important that what has ever happened in the past is kind of, if it helps me know what's coming, if it helps me believe in what's coming, if it gives me assurance of what's coming, and if it... Uh, gives me something to stand on so that I can believe in what's coming, then I'll look back with gratitude and embrace it. But what really matters is what's coming. What's coming in my life and in my eternity in relation to God and hell and sin and judgment. That's what really matters. And so the writer says, first and foremost, above all things, I tell you, the end is secure. He's the heir of all things. But you can't know for sure what the end of the story is unless you know the beginning and how it relates to the end. And so he adds, through whom, by the way, which isn't by the way, through whom he made the world. Now, why is that crucial for understanding the end? For, for this reason. You see that little word appointed there, whom he appointed heir of all things. 
Can you imagine somebody coming along? I can. Reading this, this has happened in church history. I'm not making this up. This is a, a, a heresy and a false teaching that has been true over the centuries. Somebody comes along and says, aha, he was a son in that he was appointed heir. So really what happened is that God reached down and found a, a man, a Jewish teacher, a Jesus, and he adopted him, it's called adoptionism, into the divine family, and he appointed him heir of all things, and he exalted him as a man into a relationship with God, utterly unique among all men, and he is now heir of all things, this man, Jesus. Wrong. Big, bad mistake. Big, bad mistake. And to protect us from that misunderstanding of the end and the heirship of Christ, he says, through whom the world was made. Which means two things, right? He was there. He didn't just get born here and get adopted into the divine family. Oh, there's one. There's a nice righteous man called Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Join the Godhead and I will make you heir of all things and you will be my co-ruler. This man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was there at creation. Through whom God created the world. And if you drop, drop down to verses 10 and 12, 10 to 12, you can read how Jesus was the creator. He was with God in the creation of all things and will one day roll them up like a garment, put them in a drawer and make a new heaven and a new earth. And the other thing is that he is the heir by virtue of creating all things. If you make something, it's yours. It's yours until you sell it or give it away. That's what Psalm 24 says. God owns all things because he made all things. So Jesus owns all things because he made all things. So you must ask then, well, what does this mean? He was appointed heir. So what does this word appointment or setting mean? And here's what I think it means. Underneath the ownership of Jesus Christ over all the universe, there is massive rebellion in the world called sin. And some in this room right now are in rebellion against Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will lay down your rebellion before we're done. That when you walk out of here, your whole life is, Oh, great creator, heir of the universe, I am yours. I bow my knee before you. I trust you. I lay down the arms of rebellion. I do not want to go my own way. I want your way. And I embrace you as my Savior and my Lord. I pray that that happened for some of you while I'm talking. But there are rebels in the world, millions of them. Now, what this book teaches, oh, I'm very tempted to just keep on going, and I might to just preach all the way through this book for a couple of years, because it's a great book. But elsewhere in this book, it teaches that because, like chapter 10, verse 12, because of the death and the resurrection of the Son, sin is destroyed, the devil is conquered, guilt is overcome, the wrath of God is remo removed, Satan has a death blow struck to him, 
so that the heirship, the inheritance of Christ now is not only because he made all things, but because of his redemption of so much. He inherits us and he inherits all things by virtue of conquering them at the cross. So there's a double inheritance. He has the one by virtue of his creatorship and he has the other by virtue of an appointment. God appointed him to die. God appointed him to rise. God appointed him to sit at the right hand of the majesty. And by virtue of all those appointments and his triumph over sin, death and Satan to be the heir of his people and the heir of all things in that way as well as that way. So there is a, a crucial interplay between the promise that he'll be an heir and the statement that he he made all things. Now, there's one last superiority over the phase one in this phase two, the speaking of words by the son. And it goes like this. This word by the son is so decisive and so full that there will be no third phase in history of God's communication. So let me just make sure you get this. Phase one, I spoke of old to the fathers through many portions and in many times and in many ways. Phase two, in these last days, I have spoken by my son. The beginning and the ending, the alpha and the omega. And there will be no phase three. It's over. That's why he says, in these last days, God has spoken. What does that mean? Some of you are sitting there saying, last days? This book was written 2,000 years ago. Here we are. What do you mean, last days? You mean it was the last days 2,000 years ago? That's exactly right. The last days of a war are the days after the decisive battle has been won so that everybody knows how the war is coming out. So that if you picture the enemy of God's kingdom as a big dragon at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the dragon's head was whacked off. It's there. It's lying on the ground. If you've got eyes to see, if you see what you see, you can see it. But you get out of the way of the tail. It's still flacking around. But it's dead. It's gone. It's over for Satan and sin and death. They are triumphed over in the cross and in the resurrection. When, when God sent his son, it was the close of history. The beginning of the end. And when the sun died and rose, the bomb fell. We all know World War II was virtually done when the atom bombs fell. The resistance went on. In fact, you can read some strange stories about how the resistance went on in the South Sea Islands for years in hidden away places. Real bullets flying. Everybody knows this thing is over. And that's where we've been living ever since the bomb fell on Satan. And the bomb fell on sin. And the bomb fell on death. And Jesus Christ, you read Colossians 2. The wonderful description of the triumph of God over the enemies of his kingdom. 
at the cross. All we're doing now is kind of mopping up operations. We're going everywhere saying, he won, he won, believe it, be a part of it, come on, join in the final victory, it is secure. We're not out trying to win a war, it is won. God's going to win this thing because the decisive battle has been fought. Therefore, what this writer right here in this verse wants us to hear is when he says, in these last days, God has spoken. He wants us to hear there's no third phase coming in this age. These are the last days. The word has been spoken. His name is Jesus. He lived and revealed God. He spoke and revealed God. He died and revealed God. He rose and revealed God. He ascended and revealed God. He is God's word to the world. Now, when I say in a low moment of confusion in my life or discouragement, God, why don't you talk? Where are you? The rebuke comes. John, do you know my son that well? Do you know everything he taught? Have you seen the implications of everything he said? Have you plumbed the depths of the cross and of the resurrection and of the miracles and of the walking on the water and the healing of the leprosy? Have you listened to the Sermon on the Mount and you understand it and its wonderful applications to your life? John, have you treated my son as so thin and so short that you have plumbed the depths and you have tread all over this word so that now you're ready for phase three? Really, John Piper? Is that what you want? Phase three? And I hear the rebuke and I am chastened. To go back to the source and the fountain and to drink. I think the, the Lord is calling us this morning as a church to meditate, to study, to memorize, to linger, to soak, to saturate ourselves. And in closing, if you ask this question, what about the ministry of the Holy Spirit today? What about the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, the prophetic gift? Of the Holy Spirit. What do you make of that? I'm going to write the Star article about that tomorrow night. So you get it in over a week. But I'll tell you in a sentence what I'm going to say. And I'll tell you the two verses where I'm going to get it all. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 of this book. Describe the word of the Lord Jesus, the Son, coming through the apostles to the people in this book. Third generation people. It comes with the confirmation of signs and wonders. And it comes with the distribution of the Holy Spirit as he wills. In order to confirm the word. So what I'm going to say in the star with a little bit of unpacking is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the central passion of God the Spirit, by all his gifts and through all his signs, is to direct your attention and your heart's affection onto the central word of history, Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, what he said, 
and what he accomplished. The Holy Spirit orients all his dealings around this final phase two word. He does not open a third phase. He applies the second phase. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to see what we see and to hear what we hear and to love and embrace what we see and what we hear. Without the Holy Spirit, we are superficial. We run to the television. We run to the computer. We run to the garage and the hobbies and the sewing room and... We run downtown and we run to the stock page. We run, we run, and seldom do we linger over this awesome word called the sun. Is there any wonder when we get into trouble that we cry out, Oh, where's the word? Why don't you speak? Because we've never been listening. Oh God, I pray. I pray that one of the impacts of this morning's time together would be that we see what we see and we hear what we hear and that we would linger long and meditate and memorize and study and soak and saturate our minds with this finished word spoken in these last days. In Jesus' name I pray and all the people said, Amen. There'll be prayer teams here at the front if you want to pray about any of this. We'd love to pray with you. You're dismissed.